Hi, and welcome to Allegedly Fabulous. My name is Kevin Loftus, and I am your host and producer. We talk all about pop culture, politics, true crime, personal stuff, and honestly, just whatever comes up. You know what I mean? But everything is alleged. Do not at me. So let's get into it. Thank you so much for listening. Let's chat. Love you. guys welcome back to allegedly fabulous it's kevin <sighs> okay and this is part one of a series i'm gonna do on britney spears's book the woman and me that i am holding in my hand right now it is 11:30 p.m on october 25th so the book came out yesterday. I just got it today. I mean, I had the audiobook yesterday, but my copy only arrived today. Amazon was late. I thought that was kind of rude. But to be honest, I've been avoiding reading it. <laughs> I'm so drama, I know. But I've been avoiding reading it because I've been reading all the excerpts. I haven't been holding back on that. I was just like, this will be too much for me to try to avoid spoilers or whatever. But everyone, I think who knows me knows how much of a Britney Spears fan I am and how much like she runs so deep for me. Like she's really my first like well-known person that I connected with in a really strong way. And I did connect with her in a really strong way, just like from the beginning. And I honestly, it's like spiritual. I can't even put my finger on it, but like, I think it'll come across as we start talking through the book. Um, but yeah, I wanted to avoid reading it or listening to it just because honestly, also knowing that I was going to do a podcast about it, I was just like, you know what, like I need to like take notes. I need to do this justice, um, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, here we are. I am like about a fifth of the way through and I thought let's just pause here and let's just share reactions to everything so far and talk about it. I am going to talk about, I, I, yeah, I don't really know, even know how this is going to work. I'm just going to share my thoughts um, and I wrote down some notes on it. But yeah, I actually went to the Crossroads re-release, um, the theater one um, for my birthday on Monday. Um, she always does everything on October 23rd. Baby One More Time came out on October 23rd three hit number one on the billboard chart october 23rd um yeah so it was my 31st birthday and she re-released crossroads so i went with my close friends and it was actually lovely and that was even even that was also very emotional but i don't know the more like honestly it's like better so far i'm like immediate impression this is like way better than i thought it was going to be like there were rumors like that she wasn't really writing it, that they couldn't get her to sit down and write it. Obviously, sometimes her Instagram captions are hard to follow. Um, she's clearly extreme. She's clearly 100% coherent. And like everything that she's saying is shedding light. Like aside from the big bombshells that we've seen reported, um, which I'll of course discuss as they come up. It's not to me as a Britney fan, it's not the biggest thing about this book. The biggest thing about this book is I think like how frankly she's speaking how much fairness she's giving everyone 
um, how much humor she's using, how much she's talking in such a distinctly Britney voice, which are kind of all the things that I was, I, I was probably a bit worried, like, is this going to happen? You know, obviously she has a co-writer. I want to get his name. Okay, honestly, I can't even find the guy's name anywhere on this book, but it's like, I mean, props to him. I mean, I don't think he's going to care that I didn't attribute him. He's obviously thriving this week. The book has already allegedly become the fastest selling book in like modern era. It outsold, it's the fastest selling celebrity memoir ever. And apparently um, it's, it's now outsold the final Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. It's called The Woman in Me, which it actually, it, I like had two realizations. I realized The Woman in Me, like three or four weeks after she announced the title, I realized it was a lyric in I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. And then I forgot and realized again on Monday <laughs> at the movie, um, which I thought was really sweet. You know, everybody was like, name it stronger or name it X, Y, Z. I like that she referenced her music and a song that I think people wouldn't have thought of. And I think it's really telling that she chose to re-release Crossroads and that she chose a photo for the cover also from this era. Um, I kind of feel like this was where things started to just get really tricky for her. And that's where her mind is at. I also think, you know, there's a lot of fan reaction of like, why this photo? And I kind of feel the same way. Like, it doesn't feel like it's a Herbert's photo of Britney Spears. And she's topless and she's blonde and she's staring at the camera. All sounds amazing, right? I just don't think it's the best photo of her, but I think it's her self-image of herself in a true form, which is not always the same as how someone else looks at you, right? Um, and inside the cover, there is a printed rose and she always talks about Project Rose. So I thought that was really pretty. But anyway, I have like six pages of notes to get through. I'm like I can't I'm not even gonna make any promises I was just gonna say I'll try and for this not to be like heavy or whatever but it's just gonna be what it's gonna be so first of all um she is only doing the foreword and the prologue but honestly it was just like hearing her voice was like I don't know, it's always so moving. We don't hear from her that much anymore. And when we do, oftentimes she's like doing a random skit on Instagram or something for fun. He, to hear her just speak in that like undeniable gravelly Britney Spears voice, even just for that, like was so, I don't know guys, this is moving. It was moving. And Michelle Williams is reading the actual book. I think it's genius casting. Obviously Michelle Williams is such a, respected actress and they've got a lot in common in terms of the era that they came up in and like different things that I'm sure they've gone through I'm sure Michelle can relate and I feel like Michelle has kind of a generic voice in a way um but at the same time she sounds like a little bit southern in parts and I feel like she's doing just the right amount of acting you know it's not like super overdone but she's going there so She's the perfect voice because you're kind of not thinking this is Michelle Williams speaking all the time. And again, we're talking about Michelle Williams from Dawson's Creek, not from Destiny's Child, which I do want to hear that version. And if I were Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child, I would be like parodying this on my Instagram right now. 
so when it switches over to Michelle, like in chapter one, the first thing I noticed is the language still feels like undeniably Brittany. I think it's the level of spirituality she interprets in things, in the descriptions, the rich descriptions, um, like walking through the woods, laying in her neighbor's, on the rocks in her neighbor's place, like these types of imagery, for sure. It's just a great way to open a book with such a strong sense of place, but also uh, she, she invokes God and spirituality several times and just has these incredible descriptions of people that are so imaginative and wondrous, like wide-eyed, and it just feels so Britney in that way. So I was heartened as I read as I was like, this sounds like Britney. Because again, like as a big fan, you're always, you're nervous. Like, oh God, is this going to be something that like she wasn't that dialed into? And I don't think that was the case. Obviously, I don't know what the breakdown was between her and her co-writer. Like there is a named co-writer. Um, as But even if there wasn't one, I'm sure in all of these celebrity books, there's somebody helping. Um, but it doesn't really matter to me how the sausage got made as long as it's Britney's authentic voice and she stands behind the words. And I think that's the other thing that I loved about this from page one is that because I had read a little bit from some other fans on Twitter, like, you know, there's not a lot of detail that we hadn't heard. And I think in terms of like um, sequencing of events and what happened and this and that, that's true so far um it's not even that detailed it's like we just i'm i'm at the point where we're at maybe one more time and she actually she actually has skipped over a lot of like the work side of things it's much more about her feelings and her experiences so i think it's really it's really powerful and it's really i don't know it's just like it's she's really opening up about like how the different things affected her, what, how she felt at the time and what was motivating her behavior and stuff. So if that's really interesting to me, um, like so much detail we have on her, just random little things like how she described Thanksgiving in her hometown, how she loved that time of year and like her housekeeper, um, she had a housekeeper on and off because the family's finances was on and off. Um, and she heard the housekeeper singing gospel music and like she had a spiritual experience listening to her and it changed her forever and like things like that I hadn't heard her say. Maybe she has said it somewhere, I don't know. But okay, as we go through the pages, I mean, we get into family history and finances pretty early. I think she does a great job of like kind of bringing us into that it feels starkly honest, but it also feels very fair. And it also feels like she's already done a lot of reflecting and she knows now how this all affected her and how it drove her behavior, which is incredible. So, but I mean, to cover off it, like at a high level, like her immediate family, the finances were always up and down. They had great times. They had pretty good times, but because of her father's alcoholism principally, they also had really tough times. Um, she's very generous to her father and to her mother. She kind of, well, I, would, I don't know if she's generous. I think she's generous because she, folk, she, she speaks matter-of-factly about the flaws about them, but also really kindly about the good times. And like considering everything that's, that we know has happened with the conservatorship, 
I think a lot of people weren't expecting her to do that. I'm glad that she did though, because honestly, it makes it, it drives her point home harder. And um, when she's going to talk about the awful things that they have done, but I'm I'm not going to get into like all the detail of the family history, like just read the book. But essentially, there is a tragic family history on both sides. Um, you know, her father was abused by his own father, um, emotionally and physically, it sounds like. And that paternal grandfather of hers allegedly sexually abused one of her aunts for years. Um, he was a very troubled man. Um, and so she has a whole lot, a whole lot of empathy for her father and how much of a tough upbringing he had with his father, June Spears. And she is pretty aware like that her father Jamie was extremely tough on Brian even more tough than he was on Brittany and she's pretty empathetic in that like he was the way he was because of his tough childhood um and what he'd gone through and even like him his drinking which caused so much trouble and strife for her and for the whole family it was a self-medication thing. So I feel like the fact that she says all this is like very kind and generous and like heartens me to hear that. Because I think when she gets angry later, it's going to be like, well, you know, she's she's a very loving person. And I think that that comes across like she was just so protective of everyone. She saw so much pain in her family early on and she wanted to be kind of the healer, the person to distract from that, the entertainer, she had to fight for attention in a really busy, fun household where they were like the cool house in the town. So lots of kids were always over and her mom's friends were over and everything else. And she was so small. She had to like fight for attention and she always knew how to find it. So these are the pieces that are really like interesting to hear as a longtime fan, like from her perspective of how it all came together. And also, it's really, really, really weird how much we know about Britney Spears' childhood. Like, even before this book, like, I knew she played basketball. I knew I knew the sequence, literally, of her doing competitions and then doing Broadway and then doing Mickey Mouse Club and then going back to Kentwood before going back to New York and pursuing music. Like, I knew the sequence of all that. And I knew she had never been a cheerleader. She'd played basketball and she'd been known as a tomboy and, like, all this crazy stuff but I also think it's it's because she became a superstar so young that I mean what the hell else was she supposed to talk about in those early magazine interviews especially because children were obsessed with her they were asking her things like what were you like in school what was your favorite subject like all of this stuff it's like I'm 31 years old my childhood I feel like has just ended I've had like 25 childhoods I had 25 personalities in that time but because Britney had such a more like successful childhood it was like shorter you know what I mean um so in a funny way she's like almost defined by these things that she had as a child and that like her behaviors as a child and her um hobbies and friendships and relationships and things like that because she really only had a very short amount of time in that era um, before everything changed. But okay, I mean, again, just like a broader reflection, like the whole book from the beginning feels like a brutal criticism of familial abuse and societal dynamics 
Um, and honestly, it's like pretty feminist. It's just, it, it's like, even though she's not a feminist character in a typical way, like she's so feminine and she's so people pleasing and she's um, just so feminine. She's such a feminine person. She is very critical of the men in her family. Um, and she can see the hypocrisy and she can see the hypocrisy in how they're judged um, men versus women and how Southern people were looking at the men in the family. And um, I mean, one thing she speaks really um, sweetly about is her relationship with her maternal great-grandmother, Lexi. Her grandmother, um, okay, I think it was her great-grandmother, I'm getting confused, but her great-grandmother, Lexi, um, was like really sweet and fun and she says the most vivid, pleasurable memories of her childhood are of her spending time with her, having sleepovers, listening to her music and singing with her friends and seems like this woman was like a child at heart but then they had like a small fender bender and her mother wouldn't let her hang out with her on her own anymore and she called her senile and the way that Brittany tells that story it feels like foreshadowing because it's again it's like the treatment of women with you know who were not perfect in the eyes of the family and it's like sad how Lynn perpetuated that um okay I'm like rambling here but let's just keep going Oh, I mean, she like, she made, she made my draw, jaw drop a few times because it goes between sounding like a Sandra Bullock 90s movie that's super sweet and has like an orchestral background. And then suddenly she's like, oh yeah, my parents, like when we, they were doing well financially, like they would have these great big parties and everything was good and they would stay up all night. And I'm pretty sure they were doing speed. I always assumed that because that was the drug of choice at the time. I'm like, speed, Brittany, like you just drop that out of nowhere. But I love it because it's like, FYI, like drugs have always been a part of the situation, you know? And it's just like, it is what it is. In general, she has some super funny lines and you can just imagine her sitting there in her living room in Thousand Oaks, chatting to this co-author or however she did it and just like ranting because it's there's like a dry black dark humor and I absolutely adore it like she's talking about her brother and her and his friends and again it goes from this like beautiful sort of poetic kind of imaginative prose and it's like and then it's like they were idiots they were total idiots or like my great-grandmother missed London until the day that she died like she just I don't know, there's something so dark um, and cutting about it every now and then that just comes through and it just really makes me smile and feels like her. Um, yeah, that was the other interesting family thing. She had a rich, like, maternal... God, I don't even remember who. Grandmother, great-grandmother. I don't know. But... Um, who... Or maybe it was on the other side. I don't really know. Someone in her family came from London and came from wealth and um, was expecting a different type of life, but then, yeah, didn't get it when she came to the rural south, you know. 
but and that and Brittany explains like that's why she always loved doing a British accent she was always imagining that family member oh and also there was another um gosh again I'm getting confused like grandmother or, or whatever who um committed suicide was put on lithium by oh yeah so it was her father's mother was put on lithium by her father's um crazy dad june and she ended up committing suicide on the gravesite of her son who died when he had, he was like three years old eight years after his death she committed suicide on top of his grave she talks about her closeness with brian her protectiveness over him again she could see that he had such a tough time of it um i thought that was really sweet and again, I just love that she's setting the scene like so positively or not positively, but she's showing how much she cared for them, right? Because we kind of know what's going to happen later on. She talks about just sweet things like being at some parade in her hometown and too many kids being on the golf cart in costume. She talks about running on the hot tire. Like it's just a really evocative, sweet book to read. Um... And then she kind of ends, I think, chapter, well, whatever. She ends one of these chapters talking about how, like I said, she needed to, she kind of embraced her reputation for being a little entertainer. She was looking for attention for herself. And I think also to, um, to like, keep everyone happy and stop everyone like melting down. Um, she talks about also being really attached to her mom, always being, she saw her mom have, who was stitching one of her crappy costumes one day. And, um, it was after she'd given birth to Jamie Lynn. So this might be a few years later. And, um, she stopped stitching the costume and she's like, what are you talking, what are you doing? And, um, Lynn is like profusely breathe, bleeding from like, I guess her vaginal area, um, it was like post-birth hemorrhaging um, and like the blood was gushing and she started freaking out and her dad came in and they all went to the hospital and Lynn was fine. But Brittany was like very, very on edge after that and was just really afraid of losing her um, because her mom was really, really important to her. And she would be at basketball practice, like looking out, making sure her mom was still there. And one time her mom went to Walmart or something during basketball practice and Brittany freaked out. And after that, they were like inseparable. So in a way, she's painting a picture of her actually being quite a vulnerable child. And I think this is really interesting for us to know. So at some point, they all start to realize that like, she's a little bit of a star and they put her into low her mom starts putting her in low level competitions aged five and she starts winning everything she just starts winning everything um and shortly after that so she's doing all these random things i think the biggest thing she does is star search which is televised and then aged like eight she um her parents see the ad for the Mickey Mouse Club and they bring her to Atlanta, I think, for the audition. And she does great, but she's too young. Um, she's supposed to be 10 and she's eight. And the casting director is like, you're amazing. We love you, but go get some experience and then you can come on like next year or the following year or whatever. 
So they refer her to an agent. She ends up getting an agent in New York and she ends up getting on a Broadway play as an understudy. And then a few months after, uh, a few months in, the, uh, the lead drops out. So she becomes the lead. But she basically is like, so it's her and her mom and Jamie Lynn, baby Jamie Lynn now living in New York in this tiny apartment. And like, it was a bit of a mixed experience, but basically after a while, I think she loved it. But after a while, like it was just too much work. It was grueling. It was a show every single day, two shows on Saturdays. And she's like eight years old. And then when she realizes she's going to have to work on Christmas Day, they kind of call it quits and they go back to Kentwood. And shortly after that, she gets on the Mickey Mouse Club. Um, And what I thought was really sweet about this, so she shares um, a dressing room. She ends up sharing a dressing with Christina Aguilera and Nikki Deloach or Nikki Loach or something. Um, So she doesn't actually say if they become really close. She just glosses over it. Um, She says she becomes close with Justin actually it's really interesting in Jessica Simpson's book and I think Christina Aguilera's book if she has one as well like the way they talk about this time because Jessica talks about the audition process for Mickey Mouse and then she says basically that Jessica Jessica struggled with nerves and she freaked out at the last minute because Christina Aguilera went before her and was amazing and then Britney Spears showed up didn't have to do the boot camp that everybody else had to do and just sang at the last minute because she already knew everybody um and she just nailed it you know what I mean she was just like such a professional she just like went to her mark nailed the whole thing and Jessica even though she had a lot like of talent she was just very inexperienced and she lost her spot to Britney Spears and that was just like something that haunted her for ages because she always felt like she was losing her spot to Britney Spears at various points in their early careers so really interesting to hear from Britney's perspective that wasn't obviously a part of it you know But to me, what was really sweet about this part of it is that, you know, at this time, this probably, I don't know, like the way she paints the picture, a lot of the families and the kids all became like family and their families became like family together. They're probably, I'm sure some of them were semi-professionals at this point, but like not, it sounded like not really, you know what I mean? Like obviously there was nothing super major going on. Like Britney had an agent in New York, but like, and she had been on Broadway, but like, that was it. I think a lot of the kids had didn't have a huge amount of experience, you know, and a lot of them probably were lower middle class-ish. Um, but so they're in Florida, you know, doing the show and she says the one, she says it was a brilliant time, but the one terrible thing was that they did get news that her um, grandmother or great-grandmother Lexi had past the one that she'd been close with and then I couldn't spend time with alone anymore um she died in her swimming pool they thought she might have had a stroke um and they didn't have enough money to go home so Justin Timberlake's mom lent them the airfare for Lynn Spears and Britney Spears to go home for the funeral um and Britney's like it was just such a great thing it's such a great generous thing to do it's something that family would do and again just the way she tells these stories is like so powerful she basically not powerful but I don't know there's just something magical about it because then she explains her first kiss with Justin Timberlake 
they were all playing a game of truth or dare one night and somebody dared Justin to kiss Britney and he did and a Janet Jackson song while a Janet Jackson song was playing I mean you can't you can't make that up you can't make that up the Americana of it all like it's straight out of a movie but also the fact that a Janet Jackson song was playing that's just so crazy But the show um, ends and a lot, of, um, a lot of her castmates go over to New York or LA to keep like pushing on their dreams and Britney goes back to Kentwood. Um, and it's kind of, she sets up this sort of push-pull that I think is going to be a theme for you know, her life, which is the, like, should she pursue her crazy big dreams or like a normal life? And she kind of has a big desire for both of them. Um, but she goes back to school and has a couple good years at school. Um, here's where the story about how her and Lynn Spears used to drive down when she was in the eighth grade. So I think age 13, they would drive down to Biloxi, Mississippi and drink daiquiris on the beach and white Russians. And they called the daiquiris hot toddies. This is one of the things that I read on Twitter and I was just like, this is so funny um and I actually don't even think that it's bad like at all like 13 you're drinking with your mom like I'm sure she was just having like a couple you know what I mean it's like you do need to learn to drink alcohol like I definitely started drinking at 14 not with my parents but like I think I think it's a fine thing to do I really do especially in a controlled environment like that but what I do think is weird is like I'm speculating that Lynn started to see Brittany more as a peer in a way um, because I'm sure she was already starting to be kind of in awe of the success that Brittany had achieved, her confidence and strength and her abilities, um, certain things that Lynn um, might have struggled with. Oh, I think I skipped the bit where Lynn and Jamie had a really rough marriage because of his alcoholism and they would fight all the time and break up all the time and get back together and break up and get back together. Um, in fact, she had like left him for good before Brittany was born and then was convinced to get back with him. And then they had Brittany. Um, yeah. So all that was going on and Brittany was seeing all that. Brittany also admits she started smoking when she was 13. Um, which again, I'm like, oh, fair play for like admitting that. It's like something that she's never spoken. It's like some of those things that she's never spoken about. Like she's always pictured with cigarettes, but she, I don't think she's ever spoken about it. Um, so I just appreciate the frankness. She said she was driving. She also started driving at 13 and she was driving her mom and Jamie Lynn somewhere. And her mom, like, I guess, smelled smoke and she grabbed Lynn grabbed Brittany's hand from the steering wheel to smell to be like, oh my god, is that smoke? And smell it. And then they ended up crashing the car. And um again, more trauma for everyone involved. And like Jamie Lynn wasn't in a baby seat. She was she had a seatbelt on, but she wasn't in a baby seat. And um Brittany said that like everyone was like really happy after that they didn't die and her smoking was never mentioned again and it's so funny the way she says it because she's like we almost died whatever um it's just funny but again I feel like she's 
like she's mentioning all these things because it kind of I don't know well I don't know if it's because of this but like she got so much criticism later on for you know driving with her baby on her lap and things like that but like yeah this is how she grew up so it is what it is another little anecdote that she told that I thought was really sweet and just classic Britney and just so lovely is that she got to make out with her crush um in the middle of a night at a sleepover he popped he was older than her and she had a crush on him for ages and he popped out of nowhere um beside her on the couch she was sleeping on and she woke up and they started kissing and making out but he never tried anything else and she was just like it was like encapsulating it was like a seance and i was just like that's such a like beautiful and sweet way to put it and she just has such a beautiful imagination um yeah she started dating brian's best friend her older brother's best friend and that's who she lost her virginity to so again like love that she's open about that and i love that it wasn't justin um okay and then we go so then she kind of like the next part is like she basically is like i'm ready to like I'm kind of done with my little small town life again. I'm ready to, she's like 15. She's like, I'm ready to like get back on the scene. So she, um, her mom calls Larry Rudolph, who was an entertainment lawyer that she'd been put in touch with and she stayed in touch with and got some advice from here and there. He had an old Tony Braxton demo, which he got Britney to record. And then they started shopping around to labels and um, she eventually got a deal with Jive, a development deal. Um, she really connected with Jive's label head. He was like so enigmatic and mysterious and cool and had this tiny white Yorkshire Terrier that she loved. And she started recording, um, mostly in New Jersey with Eric Foster White. Um, but she talks about her first meeting with Max Martin and how I don't know, she just makes it sound magical again. And again, she speaks really respectfully of him, which like, as she should, he's amazing. Um, but like a lot of the times these relationships break down or people resent their collabor collaborators that are um, such a big part of their success. So I just liked hearing that she still has fond memories of him, but she was sent to go to dinner with him basically in New York when he was visiting um, without any handlers or anything, which is very unusual for her at the time because she was young. And she says they went for dinner in this like steakhouse and the waiter came over to ask them what they wanted and suddenly the candle like flipped over and their table caught fire. Um, and so they ended up leaving, but it kind of broke the ice between them, it sounds like. And I don't know, it's just like crazy stories like that. I know it's maybe I'm just like getting really into this, but like there's like a, there's a spirituality element of everything in here. Um which is really cool. So she ends up going to Sweden to record with him. And she was like, his songs were just amazing. And at, she admits like at that point, she really didn't know what she was doing. She just wanted, and she was just like, wanted help creating stuff that people would connect with. And she says that the night before she recorded Baby One More Time, she was listening to Soft Cell's Tainted Love. And she was like, that's how I want my voice to sound. I want it to be a bit more gravelly, raspy, mature and sexy. And that's what she did. Um, 
And I think, and I'll close with this, she says, because this struck me as really interesting, that she was most passionate, probably most passionate about music at this time in her life because nobody knew her and there was just so much opportunity and she was playing around, I guess. Um, it's just so crazy because this is, and she talks about, you know, how she would lock herself in the studio and do everything a thousand times and she would never take breaks and she would make everyone stay and do it again and again and again. And, um, it's just funny because as like a fan, you know, Baby One More Time in a way is the album that feels somewhat the least Britney. I think it's because a lot of the songs that made it on the album obviously the singles are so Britney and so amazing but a lot of the songs that made on the album feel like so young so teen pop and it feels like to me honestly like some of them sound like you know just like they were recording for ages in New Jersey with this producer that wasn't like the perfect fit but they were trying to find the right sound like a lot of those like songs of them trying to find the right sound and Britney trying to figure out her voice and like them trying to showcase her voice like those are songs that made on the album so it sounds it doesn't sound like the album where she had a, it's the album where she had like the least creative input I mean even the later albums during the conservatorship where she probably wasn't that creatively involved as she had been at least they were like so inspired by her and her persona whereas this one um in a way feels like less that way but um I mean I still adore the album but I just was very struck that she said that this was the time she was most passionate about music and not perhaps like you know during the making of In the Zone or something like that where she was really really hands-on with production and writing and everything but all in all 10 out of 10 obviously I'm loving it I am gonna do like I'm just gonna post little recaps as I go through it um I don't know how interesting these will be for people who are not mega fans like me because I'm obviously going through it at a painstaking level, but it is what it is, bitches. Um, let me know what you think. Literally, just send me your comments and maybe I can read some of them on the next episode. Love you so much. Bye.